Chapel, Mason City. Anyone ever get in trouble for doing the right thing? I mean, a lot of you started nodding your heads before I even finished the sentence. You probably got in trouble for doing the wrong thing over and over again. Has anybody ever gotten in trouble for doing the right thing? Anybody? Yeah. It happens, right? And that's what was essentially happening in Peter's day and age, where there were Christians that were getting persecuted for following Jesus, just for being different than the pagan culture around them. This letter of 1 Peter is... It's called 1 Peter because it's written by a guy named Peter. It's not written to a guy named Peter. It's written by a guy named Peter. There's 1 and 2 Peter. And these are New Testament letters. And they are written to Christians to instruct them. That's um, what you find a lot of the New Testament is filled with what we would call epistles or letters. They're letters by an author to an audience. And the purpose is to instruct them about something. And so the audience in this case Christians that have been dispersed about Asia Minor. And the reason they were dispersed or scattered like seed around Asia Minor is because persecution was uh, hardcore in Rome. Um, you've heard the term Roman candle. Well, the Romans used to treat Christians as if they were candles, stringing them up, dipping them in wax, and burning them alive, and torturing, and uh, feeding them to lions, and all kinds of different stuff. That's how Christians were treated in Rome under Nero. And so the Christians uh, were dispersed from their homes to escape this sort of treatment. And there were wild rumors about Christians. They thought that Christians were cannibals because they were eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus, you know, which is, you know, picture, it's, you know, symbology for what happens in communion. They were, you know, in trouble with Caesar because they worshipped another king. And when they were dispersed around Asia Minor, it wasn't like the people were welcoming to these Christians. Oh, hey, great. Move on into my community. You know, show up at your door. I got some brownies and welcome to the neighborhood. You know, it wasn't like that. It was, who are these weirdos? They are rejecting Caesar and they got really poor treatment everywhere that they went. They got in trouble a lot for doing the right thing. Now that brings up a whole bunch of questions that how do we act when that's the case. It's really the purpose of his writing. Peter wants to point them to the divine hope that they have in times of suffering. So, file this away in your brain. If you're dealing with trials and suffering, 1 Peter's a good book for you to read. He's been repeatedly encouraging these Christians by reminding them of some of the bedrock truths of the faith. One is, he says, you need to know, you need to remember the fact that you were elect, you're chosen by God. If you're a Christian today, if you call upon the name of the Lord as Savior, you were chosen by Him to do that. That's a good thing to be reminded of in a time of suffering. Life might be crazy all around me, but I've been chosen by God. He, in His wisdom, wants me. That's a very powerful truth. He reminded them that they were redeemed by the blood of Jesus. 
that they had been in slavery to the enemy and to their own flesh and their own passions, but they had been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And he reminds them that they are assured of an incorruptible inheritance. Not like the inheritance that you may or may not get in this life, right? But they have this inheritance that's sure in heaven. They're reminded of these truths. Also that they can be looking forward to their forever home in heaven. That's another powerful truth. You're dealing with things in life. You're, you're wondering, when will this give out? When will this season of suffering be over? Well, I couldn't tell you. But there is a day that's coming when... You'll just rejoice in the presence of the Lord forever, free from pain and perversion and corruption and all the confusion that's in this world. There will be a day, and that's coming. Very important for a Christian to keep their mind on these things. So then he starts to get into chapter 2, chapter 3, what sort of conduct Christians should have in a world that's not necessarily thrilled with you because you're a Christian. And he talks about husbands and wives last time, about proper conduct in marriage. So if you're interested in that, you know, maybe you find the sermon online from last week. So he was talking about that proper conduct. This time he talks to all believers about general conduct and then specifically how to have victory in unjust treatment. So there's some really practical stuff right here. And that one's very simple, the message. Look at number one, it's um, if we're going to live victoriously in spite of unjust treatment, we must live in unity and love. We must endure unjust suffering. Uh, we have to understand what it is. We have to endure it. We have to understand that there's a blessing in it. And then number three, we need to be ready to give a reason for our hope with a clean conscience. I was trying to keep the points short. That last one is, you know, it's out of place. It's like, but there's so much stuff in that last point, so we just tucked it all in there, and, uh, you know, I think, I think we're going to be okay. Let's go ahead and read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. I want to pause and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for your word. And as we approach it today, Lord, may our hearts be free from distraction. May our minds be clear. May our spirit be willing and able to receive from you what you have. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. First of all, the call to unity and love. When he says finally there, Peter is a true preacher. Have you noticed he's saying finally in the middle of the book? <laughs> One more thing is, though, finally, it's a summary of what he's been talking about before. So when he says finally, he's dealing with this conduct. Now he's going to finally, let me, let me conclude the conversation on conduct. Notice he says, all of you be of one mind. Now, this is not a call to uniformity, where everybody, you know, looks alike, thinks alike, acts alike. You guys know the Bible was written in Koine Greek, the New Testament, and sometimes we look at the words in the Greek language to see if there's something there uh, that would be helpful to us to understand. Where he says, all of you be of one mind. It literally means to have the same mind. That's literally what that word would read as. And this is dealing with the major points of Christian doctrine and practice. 
Now, this is an interesting thing, especially to the unbelieving world. They look at the Christian church today and they say, why is there so little unity amongst Christians? There's so many different denominations doing different things. Now, there's a couple of responses to that that I've witnessed in my life. There's the one response where Christians say, you know what's really just important is love, so doctrine doesn't matter. And they'll start to say stuff like, doctrine divides people, and so it's better that we all just get along. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, this group or that group or the other. Now, that's one response to it. Then the other response is to, you know, on the other far side, the other you know, side of this for contrast is people get so nuanced about every little tiny doctrine, even the primary ones and the secondary and the tertiary, the third level doctrines, that they, you know, they're not even sure if they should be in the church. They, they think they need to kick themselves out because they're not so sure if they're orthodox. You know, like, I don't know. I mean, it's just me and this other gal here, and she's my wife. She's got to go, though. Because, yeah, I don't know. So you have these extremes, like doctrine's not important, and every single tiny little thing needs to be, you know, worked out and nuanced. And, and um, obviously, I think the truth's in the middle of that somewhere. Doctrine does divide. You know, some of the people that are over on this side say, we just need to stop making an emphasis on doctrine. Doctrine, because they say doctrine divides. Doctrine does divide. When you say that Jesus is the brother of Satan, as certain, you know, cults do, then that certainly divides you from a fellowship that says Jesus is not the brother of Satan. You know, when you believe that after you die, there is an investigative judgment that happens to decide whether you go to heaven or hell or not, like the SDA church teaches, then that divides them from Orthodox Christianity. That's, a, that's not Christianity anymore, because you're talking about a different way to be saved. Now, we could go on and keep pointing all these out there, but, but the thing is, is doctrine does divide it has to, but it also unites. The reason why I don't think we see as much unity and we see a lot of division is because people are starting to become, you know, trying to find unity around other things other than the Bible. Now, when he says all of you be of one mind, I, I think this goes, you know, without saying if everybody is in the word, and I think this is a problem with a lot of churches, is not everybody's all in the word. And I think even in leadership in churches, all you know, so you have Sunday school teachers that don't even know the gospel. They don't even know how somebody's to be saved. They don't even know the Old Testament from the New Testament. And they're bringing up kids like that. And everything's just some cute little Bible story to them rather than you know, the importance of doctrine. I think that's, that this would, we'd see more of this if people were more in the Word of God, if they were more committed to the Bible. He goes on saying, having compassion for one another. That's an interesting word in the Greek. It means strong bowels. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Because compassion comes from the bowels. It's you know, it's out of this area. It's like, Ugh, you know, it's from, I apologize for that. <laughs> that was, it was from the bowels, though. Romans twelve fifteen. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is the kind of thing that should be going on in a church family. And, and today people are so isolated and insulated from feeling anything anybody else feels, you know? They'll hear that, they'll see somebody weeping and they'll say, oh, <laughs> you know. Or somebody rejoicing because something good happened with them in their life and then the person says, I can't rejoice with them because really I'm jealous of them, you know? I can't rejoice that you got married because I'm so sad that I'm single. 
You know, I can't rejoice that you have kids because I don't have kids. You know, or whatever it might be. Or I can't rejoice that you got a promotion because my ain't my job. Well, God's called us and He's blessed us with the ability to be, you know, just bigger people than that, right? By His Spirit. That's what He leads us to. Is have compassion. This He's talking about the church family here. Have compassion for one another. Feel the the Greek word literally means to feel alongside with someone, right? So in the church, you feel alongside with the people next to you. The relationships are important. I gotta tell you, I, I know what this is like to feel the joy. I know I know a dude that's on the honor roll almost got his grades, you know, and I'm feeling the joy with the family. I'm like, yes, man, and rejoicing with this uh, situation. Part of the church family, you know. Stuff, you know, hard stuff in somebody's life comes out like, ah, you know. You feel for him, and so that's what he's saying. Love is brothers. This is not referring to agape love that God produces in the heart. This is phileo. This is the Philadelphia. This is the brotherly sort of love. So he's saying in a church, you got to have that brotherly friendship, sibling sort of love with one another. You know, it's easy to say brother, sister, but he's saying have this. Uh, true friends that genuinely like one another. I gotta tell you, man, I was in a coffee shop the other day, and I, I don't like to say negative stuff, but I, I, you can't help, there's this particular coffee shop in town, you can't help but hear what other people are saying. You just can't help it. Try to put on my headphones. And, and to hear the people saying the bad things about the people that they go to church with, and just, just it's like, good God. <laughs> You know, if you, when you go to church with people, you should like them, you know? You say, I can't like those people. Well, maybe you need to get over yourself, you know? Maybe you're not all that likable. Remember what it says in the Proverbs? A man that has friends needs to be what? Friendly. Friendly, right? So that could be your problem. If you don't have a lot of friends today, it could be that you're not very friendly, you know? So I'm not trying to be a tough guy up here, but I know that was my issue for a number of years. Just not a very friendly guy, you know? Choose to be alone all the time. Well, you're not going to have a lot of friends, then you're not going to be a brother to people if that's how you are. Be tenderhearted, uh, tenderizer. <laughs> uh, you know, life in Peter's day was cold and calloused and hard. It was a hard thing. We can't even really imagine the culture back then, um, but life was cold, you know? And so he says that you need to be tenderhearted. And the love of Christ, the spirit of Christ, will soften your heart up towards people. Uh, certainly will. Be courteous. This word in the Greek means to have uh, a low, modest opinion of yourself, right? There are some people that um, have a real hard time with this, you know, and, and I'll say I've struggled with this over the years. You know, I didn't even realize how much wiring I had, you know, where I was arrogant, you know, and, and still, God, please help me. You know, it's still coming out. I didn't even realize it, you know, but it's typically the people that don't have a modest opinion of themselves. They typically don't realize that, that they're like that a lot of times. You know, how many times have you met a real arrogant person that goes around and says, yeah, I'm pretty arrogant, you know? I mean, they, they don't really admit it or they don't really know it, you know? Be courteous, be friendly, be kind, be humble-minded. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. On the contrary, blessing. Remember Jesus said, I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. That doesn't have to do with physical violence when Jesus is talking about there. He's talking about, you know, reviling. He's talking about accusations. People talk trash about you. Don't turn around and talk trash about them. 
This is difficult. I mean, I got to tell you, this is difficult for me, especially when somebody hurts me, you know? Like, somebody will hurt me, and then somebody else will bring that person up later. And I really am tempted to just, not just let it, not just let it all flow, but to cleverly do it in ways where I, you know, cleverly say things about their character. And then I'll even get real Christian and say, we should just pray for them, you know what I mean? It's just despicable, you know, how, at least to myself, you know, God help me. I don't want to be like that. When I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. That's what Jesus is saying to do. In other words, believers, you need to be forgiving of people, you know? Now listen, all of these things that he just lists in that verse, I have found these are incredibly easy for me as long as everything goes my way. <laughs> so, yeah, moving on here. He says, uh, you know, Matthew five forty six. listen to what Jesus says here. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors and sinners do that? Oh, you love people that love you? Amen. Good job. Now, there are the rare people that can't even love the people that love them. You know? They don't even do a good job of that. But... But listen, there are people, uh, you know, that, the, you know, I'm really good at loving my own family. I'm really good at caring for them and giving them top priority in my top shelf, man. But everybody else comes somewhere else later. Jesus says, well, if you love those that love you, uh, why are you different than any crook or criminal, you know? What Peter's prescribing here really kicks in when things don't go my way or when things are wrong in life. You know, that in, in the church, like the agape love is the glue of the church. You find out really if you're living as Jesus wants you to live when things don't go your way. When, when, you know, when they replace the carpet in the church and it is a color that you don't like. And you think, man, that is heretical. I know that my opinion is so important about that carpet color and nobody listened to me. We go down the street and talk about that guy. I don't think he even went to seminary. Yeah. He certainly would have known how to set up a carpet committee if he did. Right? <laughs> This stuff really kicks in when things don't go your way or when you're wronged. I need help for the Spirit to live like this. But really, how beautiful, right? In a world where you could get sucked into so many different things. Look what he says there. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. You know this as a Christian. and The blessing that you have in Jesus Christ, all that's coming into your life through Jesus Christ, that's coming into your life, that is coming, that you're looking forward to, because all that's true and your heart's fixed into it, you can live like this. I can live like this. Praise God. If my mind's on the right things, then I can, I can deal with people saying things about me. I can deal with people doing things to me that are unjust that I don't really care for. And I can be a Christian through these things, through these challenges in life if my mind is in the right place. Right Now, these next words, are they capitalized in your Bible or in italics, verse 10 through 12? The reason that is is because Peter, um, the translators, want to show that this is, a tra this is a quote from the Old Testament or from another place in the Bible. In this case, it's from Psalm 34. He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him speak peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So what Peter said in the first uh, couple of verses there, he essentially is he was expounding on what this psalm says. And now he's kind of reading the psalm where he sort of got his idea before, right? Where he says, uh, let him refrain his tongue from evil. 
he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. Now, generally speaking, generally speaking, if you control your mouth, you can keep yourself out of trouble. Now, I know this because I, because the opposite. I'm not very, I say too much. Get in trouble. So I really am jealous of the people that just don't do that, you know, like, but that's been the story of my life. When wrong, it's easy for us to say things we shouldn't, gossip, exaggerate, swearing, deceptive talk. The human tongue has the capability to pour forth all kinds of evil. Psalm 141, verse 3. He says, you know, set a guard over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. It's a good prayer for some of us. Let him turn away from evil and do good. This is the overall flavor of the Christian life. See that in verse 11? Holiness. The constant pursuit, replacing impure thoughts and desires and habits with whatever things are true and noble and just and pure, lovely, things of good report. That's the, that's the flavor of the whole Christian life. Is like, you get saved, Jesus comes and lives in your life, and you're justified, and you're, and you're saved, and, and all of your sin, past, present, and future on the cross. But you've got this process that you're going through now where where this old nature still lives in you, although you have this new nature. And so a Christian that's you know doing it right, so to speak, is one that's constantly turning from evil and turning towards good. You're looking at your life and you're saying, Well, this no, this is not what I should be doing. I gotta turn to this, and I keep doing it and creating new habits in my life. You know? <laughs> let him refrain, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now, humans, some more than others, are quick to quarrel and argue. There's something perverse and corrupt about an argumentative, quarrelsome spirit that is attracted to controversy. Some people just love controversy. They love to get into it. They love to rebel. Their favorite word is no. You say something, and their, their instant response is just the negative of it. And, and they get a YouTube channel, and they get a platform, and people love them. And, and say, oh, he's so controversial. They set up on college campuses and, and just want to go toe-to-toe and duke it out and argue with people. And it's like, you know, I don't know. The Bible tells us to be at peace. Look at Romans 12, 18. Let me read it. It says this. If it is possible... As much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. You see what that says in Romans? That's what a Christian should be doing. As as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all people. That means don't be going out stirring up controversy. Right? You say, wait a minute, this doesn't look like Republican Christianity in 2023. Now you're getting it. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. And I find great comfort in that, to know that because I'm righteous through Jesus Christ, I have his righteousness. I know that God's eyes are on me, and his ears are on me. This is an anthropomorphism, right? This is a way to describe God's all-seeing eyes and his all-hearing ears. But I mean, he doesn't, he's a spirit, nobody's seen him. He doesn't have eyes and ears. But this is a comforting thing, especially in times of suffering and mistreatment, to know, you know, God's eyes are on me. His eyes are on you. Do you forget that when you're going through hard things? Get that into your heart. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you are outside of Christ and you're rejecting God's, you know, hope of salvation, you know, that's where all this starts. You need to receive the hope of salvation. You need to receive Christ. What God has done for you. In these first verses, 
Do you see the blessing in all of this? Verses 8 through 12 here. Being like this, having a church family like this. Right? I cannot tell you how much support that I've gained through church family. People praying for me, encouraging me. In this unified family where everybody's like-minded, we're all like, okay, Jesus is God, the Bible's the Word of God, the Holy Spirit's essential in our lives, we're called to worship Him, to serve Him, to fulfill the Great Commission, and that's a like-minded thing in this church. You know, it's, and, and I can't tell you how much support I've received as we're all in this together. The call to bless those who treat us poorly, what a blessing. The bitterness I used to carry, learning to quickly desire mercy now for my enemies rather than to retaliate against them. These things are such a blessing. Turning from evil. I don't know if you know this because I look pretty pretty square these days, but my life used to just be one big rotten pile of evil. <laughs> I worked at this job out in California. <laughs> it was in a mortgage office and I had to wear a suit. And then one day, I started telling this gal our processor about my past life and she's like I would have never thought you know like well God takes you out of the big rotten pile of evil he straightens you out the life of seeking and pursuing peace the joy and fulfillment of living like this the world is so filled with stupid drama right and when God tells you hey look my people are people that pursue peace it's, it's okay just to that to me I hear Adam you have the permission to like just step out of the drama that so many people are entangled in, right? So many of those magazines at the grocery store line, checkout line. Kim Kardashian did the, uh, you know what? I could give a rip, man. <laughs> you know? And people that are fascinated with that stuff, it's like, man, what a burden, you know, to try to keep up with all this drama that, that's in this world, you know? You can turn from it. You're called to something truly great. Now, everyone that, when you get onto this kind of life, and you want to live and pursue good like this, everybody totally loves that all the time, right? No. <laughs> and that's the next section here. So first of all, to vic live victoriously in spite of unjust treatment, we must live in unity and love. And now look at this, verse 13. He says, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? It's almost like a rhetorical question that Peter's asking to his audience here. Who, who is it that would harm you if you decided to follow Jesus and do good? And they're like, uh, yeah, all these people that are, you know? He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. I love that the Bible is not out of touch with reality. God tells us plainly in the word that we will suffer as Christians. Notice that he says that there. Who is he who harm you become, when you become followers of what is good? When it says become followers of what is good, the followers were there. It's actually in the Greek is zealots. Who is going to harm you when you become zealous for the word of God and for Jesus Christ? Well, there are people out there. I remember when I was living in Southern California when um, Jesus turned my life around and I'd been, you know, like up to my eyeballs in the DJ scene out there and I had a bunch of friends that, uh, we were best of friends and when I became a Christian, you know, I was super vocal about it and, um, 
Which, by the way, I heard sometime that you should lock up new Christians for a year because they're too vocal about it right after they get saved. That's nonsense, man. Let them rip, you know. Send them out there. It's unfortunate that Christians out of their first year get talked out of being that zealous by, you know, professional Christians, right? It's too bad, man. Get you, I love some brand new Christians. Turn them loose, man, you know. Uh, they, don't, they haven't, you know, become so smart that they're useless, you know. Now, all of my friends out there, for the most part, you know, liked the fact that I was a Christian. I had this Jewish friend, and I had him come over to my house, and I'm like, he wants to work on music, and I'm like, no, we're going to watch documentaries about, you know, Jesus, how he's the fulfillment of Judaism. This guy's like, no, we're not, man, you know. And I said, come on, man, like, you say you're a Jew, you don't even, you don't even know what you believe, and I'm talking into staying, and, you know, just, just abusive, you know, like, take notes, man, go home, ask your dad, you know, get some, or stop calling yourself a Jew, you can't tell me you're a Jew anymore if you don't even know the first thing about Judaism, buddy. And, uh, <laughs> we had a good time. Yeah. <laughs> most, most people were pretty tolerant of the whole thing, you know, and some of them, a bunch of them actually got saved. Not, you know, not for me directly, but just the Lord did a thing. But there was this one particular dude that he became hostile just because I became a Christian, you know, like he turned on me like he never even knew me. And we were tight. We used to, we used to host a radio program uh, together, you know, and uh, he just, he pulled the plug on the friendship just like that. And so... I was kind of shocked, man, because I thought, you know, like, my whole life I just had been a bad dude. And I thought that the world was a really good place, and I was the, really the only guy that was really all that bad. And I thought when I became a Christian and started doing what was good, like, the whole world was going to be like, finally, you know, thank you, Adam. He's come over to the light, and, and everything was going to go smoothly, and everything was going to be great. But I noticed now that I, all of a sudden I was really offensive to some people just because of the name of Jesus. And I didn't even, I didn't expect that. You know, they start, you know, friends don't call you, they don't want to hang out because, you know, Jesus. Why is that? Well, John 3, verses 19 through 20, uh, has something that I think is useful. I'm not going to read it verbatim or anything, but essentially what Jesus says is, you know, light came into the world, and people didn't want to receive it because... Their works are evil, and so they don't like the light. I heard a pastor put it like this one time. He says, you know, well, have you ever worked in a bar? Anybody? Anybody ever bartended? Sorry, but it's tough, isn't it? How you get them out of there at 2 in the morning? Just turn the lights on. Kind of works like that. A lot of the things that this world does, they would rather do in the dark. And so when somebody comes and turns the light on, they don't like it. When somebody pours the salt in the infected wound, people don't like it. And so who is it that will harm you if you become followers of good? Well, there's a lot of people out there. Look at what it says, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. Now, I stopped at these words. Suffer for righteousness' sake. I will tell you there's not one preacher on late night television that believes that you will ever suffer for righteousness' sake. They teach this like heresy that says if you're right with God that you'll never suffer anything. Like if you have enough faith, you know, you'll you won't but it says right there that you you know, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, I mean he's talking about what to do when this is the case. 
here's the point. He says, first of all, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, know this, that you're blessed. See that there, verse 14? You are blessed. So first of all, I'm dealing with evil treatment for righteousness sake. I need to remember I am blessed. Let me make a comment before going forward. I don't want you to think that I've suffered a whole bunch of unrighteous treatment in my life uh, for, for Christ's sake. I don't know. I don't think many of us probably have. You know, it's, we're not like in some persecuted country, you know, where there's a bullet whizzing by your head because you're a Christian. So hopefully we don't really need to learn how to apply these things really well. But nonetheless, he's speaking to persecuted Christians. He says, first of all, you've got to know that you're blessed. Verse Matthew verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. There's the kingdom of heaven. James 1.12. My brother encountered all joy when you fall into various trials. How can I be blessed when I'm going through a trial like this? Philippians 3.10. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Right? So when you're suffering for Christ's sake, if you realize you're blessed in all this, you also need to realize that you're, you're probably a lot like Jesus at that point. You know, if you're suffering in this life for the same things that Jesus suffered, I mean, there's a blessing in that, isn't there? I think that's some of what's appealing about the military, right? It's like, you know, guys have gone through these things together and then they get back and they meet at the VFW and they talk together and, and they've been through the same things together. There's a, there's a blessing in, in fellowship through suffering, right? Also, when you're suffering, knowing that you're blessed, knowing that Christ has blessed you with eternity, with salvation, and the things that you will uh, look forward to in life. You're also blessed because the Psalms start making sense to you, right? How many people read the Psalms, you know, forever and go, I don't know, what does it mean by the Lord's my shield? He's my rock. He's my defender. I don't know anything about any of these things. Well, once you've needed to be shielded, defended, and once you've fallen, you know, you know, feel like the ground's falling out from below you. You appreciate the rock, Amen. right? Now, he says, don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. This is the second response we need to have to unjust suffering. Stay calm. Don't fear. There's no need to get shaken up at the enemy's tactics. Jesus says in John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. This is Jesus' word to disciples. Don't let your heart be troubled. You don't need to. You worship the creator of the universe. He loves you. Matthew 10, 28 says this, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You know the remedy for the fear of man? is the fear of God. It always is. Whatever you're going through in life, if you're filled with fear and worry and anxiety and doubt and all these different things in life, the remedy for all of those is the proper respect for God. It's always that. It's always recalibrating and saying, God, you're, you're the center. i, I got to remember who I belong to. Yes. Right? Now, next point, number three, be ready to give this reason for our hope with a clean conscience. But look what he says here, but. It's a word of contrast. But sanctify, that is, set apart in a special place. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. 
Now, sanctify God in your hearts. See, don't be afraid, in the last section, don't be afraid of the threats of evildoers and man, what man can do to you, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart. The NASB reads, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. The reason that is is because the Texas Receptus has uh, Christ, but other manuscripts have uh, or I'm sorry, I have Christ. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts is the Texas Receptus, and these other translations have sanctify the Lord Christ in your hearts. So he's saying, this is important detail. I'm not just trying to show you how I know these things about textual criticism. Where he says sanctify Christ in your heart, what he's saying is God, he's, Jesus is God. Have a special place in your heart. Set him apart from every single thing else in your life because Jesus is God, right? And that's what you do when you're going through suffering in life. Is you, you know, all of these things, but you, you, you stop and you say, wait a minute, Jesus is God and he loves me and he died for me. And he's got this place, he's set apart in my heart and nothing, nothing else is going to be the Lord of my life. Fear is not going to be the Lord of my life. Anxiety, worry, anticipating what might or might not happen, those things are not going to be God of my life. You say, how could those ever be the God of anybody's life? Are people controlled by those things? Yeah, that's why Pfizer and his role in everybody's money. Sanctify Jesus Christ as God in your heart. Trust in him. Acknowledge Christ as Lord of your life. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, the word translated defense there is the Greek word apologia. That's where we get our English word apologetics. It simply means to give an account or to provide a legal testimony. So, you see, a believer that is understood in times of suffer and trials in their life and unjust suffering, a believer that is understood that they are blessed, they've failed to panic and freak out, they've acknowledged Christ as Lord of their life in their mistreatment, those people are ready then to share a defense. Right? Now, we often think of apologetics simply as giving a bunch of facts about Christianity or theism to an atheist. Or that's what we think of apologetics. I know all the facts, so when you come at me and, and you don't believe in God, I can tell you, you know, here's the you know, second law of thermodynamics and all these different things. And, and that's what we think of apologetics. Is, but the way Peter's using it here is he's saying, when your life proves the fact that Jesus is God because of the way you deal with mistreatment, that's a testimony. Now, when that person starts saying, you know what, Jesus is God, let me tell you why. You say, well, I can see why. <laughs> I see how you deal with people. I see how you deal with life. It's obvious that Jesus is Lord because, you know, you're controlled by him in the things that you... People, have you ever had people, you look at a Christian and you go, how in the world is it that you can go through the things you're going through? And you don't freak out and just, like, drop the hammer on people. Well, it's because I have a Lord that controls my life. Be encouraged that when you suffer mistreatment, people are watching your life as the Christian. How you handle your life speaks volumes. How come you don't go run to all those crutches that everybody else runs to? I've been having a tough day. Just let me just let me be and drink my beer, man. Let me just leave me alone. I've had a tough day. While you're running to a crutch that doesn't hold you up. These people were talking trash about me, so I got on the line and I talked trash about them. Well, 
But when people see that you don't act like that, when you don't respond those ways to life, man, that's a witness. Mm-hmm. And then you can give a reason. You can talk about Jesus with them in a way where it's actually going to you know, mean something. You know? Now, this again is one of the reasons we have these short testimonies here. Because you're learning to give this defense. You're learning to give this apologetic, right? He says, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your conduct in Christ may be ashamed. In other words, if like you're doing the right thing, it doesn't matter what people say about you. you know, if you're living a, a you know, spotless life, not a sinless life, nobody does that. You know? But when you're, when you're living in obedience to Christ and, and people say something about you, it doesn't stick. Don't be ashamed. People try to attack you, take you down, and you're doing the right thing. Just do the right thing. For it's better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I just want to point out again, look at the words there. For it's better if it is the will of God to suffer. Right? Um, Are there times in your life where you're suffering and it is the will of God? Yes. That's what it says right here. It says it in many places in the Bible. But I, I, I love it. It's just kind of common sense there. You're going to suffer either way in life. And you're either going to suffer because you're sinful and, you're, and you keep reaping the consequences of your sinful life. Or, you know, if you've, got, if you've got to suffer either way, suffer for doing the right thing. There are some people that will never move past that because their life is a continuous consequence for all of the stupid decisions they make over and over again and all the sin that they live in. And those people are suffering. There's nothing righteous about that suffering. There's nothing good in God's eyes about suffering because you do bonehead stuff. (laughs) But there's something very good in God's eyes and there's a huge blessing in being his representative here on earth and when you stand on his principles and his truth and that brings difficulty and hardship into your life. That's what he says right there. I don't want to overstate hype things as we conclude things because I just, I hate hype. But the world is becoming increasingly hostile towards Christianity towards you as a Christian. When there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon people, you know, protesting Israel, uh, Israel's right to defend themselves, supporting terrorists um, assembled in places, you know, when there are people that are, well, I wasn't going to overstate, so. The world's growing increasingly hostile towards the Bible and anybody that holds to it as truth. How are you going to conduct yourself in that sort of environment? Well, we need to, as a church, live in unity and love. We need to endure unjust suffering, sometimes understanding there's a blessing in it, and we need to be ready to give a reason for our hope with a clean conscience. Perhaps the most comforting thought to me is, if I get to suffer for Christ's sake, then you know I'm like my Lord, and I can know the fellowship of his suffering.